if you have your Bibles, you can turn to John chapter 8. We'll get there in just a minute. We've been in a sermon series called In His Steps, where we've been tracing the life of Jesus Christ chronologically through the Gospels. It's taken us a while. It'll take us a little while longer uh, to get through it. Hopefully, these stories have come alive to you in a, in a, a more meaningful way than if you had just read them on your own. As we read them together and we look at how the Gospels complement each other, how they work together, how the same story may be in multiple gospel accounts, we see little uniquenesses that appear in those stories. And so we're going to get to John chapter 8, the end of John chapter 8 in a minute. I do want to remind you in your bulletin, there is a little sheet um, that you can follow along, fill in some blanks uh, to keep you awake. Have some, it feels like the energy is just low today. Maybe my energy is low I I should have gotten a double shot of espresso this morning. I did not. Um, And so it just feels like we're a little little subdued today. It's okay. We're a Pentecostal church. We can be a little lively. It's all right. You can shout. My dad always said, the louder you shout, the better I preach. So it's not the faster. It's just the better. So if if you want a bad sermon, stay quiet. But uh, you can text questions during the service. The question, there's a phone number um, at the bottom of most of the slides. There's a phone number listed on this little handout. You can text questions anonymously if you have them during the service. Towards the end, we'll answer the questions. So uh, we won't call your name. We won't point at you or anything like that because I don't know who asked them. Um, And so, but we definitely want uh, there to be some participation. If there's something I say and you would like me to to expound on it a little bit, we definitely want to do that. So. Um, most of you have been out of school for a little bit. Most of you are glad to be out of school for a bit. Yeah, all right. Well, if you're not, go back to school for a semester, and then you'll be glad you weren't in school. Um, So we're going to take a good old-fashioned true or false test. I loved true or false test when I was in school because it's 50-50. It just has to sound true. Uh, But the reality is you always have that teacher who gives you a true statement with the exception of one word. And it negates the whole statement. And if you don't catch that one word, then what you thought was true is really false. And what you thought was false was really true. So we're going to do a little true and false test. You don't have to raise your hand. You don't have to say it out loud. This is not the part you need to get loud about because you might have the wrong answer. So let's just... In your mind, just kind of say in your mind, true or false, and then I'll tell you whether it's true or false. All right. So the first statement is, everyone sins a little, but people are good by nature. True or false? Don't say it out loud. The answer is false. People are not good by nature. People have a fallen nature, according to Scripture. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There is no one righteous, not even one. So we are fallen by nature, which is why we need a Savior. Okay? All right. So that was a little practice one. Let's go. If you're like, oh, man, I I feel like people are good. No, they're really not. Being good is the exception and not the norm. Being honest and truthful without Christ is the exception. That's not the norm. The norm is people are evil by nature. People are selfish and evil by nature. All right, I'm sorry if that ruins your your perception of your your neighbors. They're good people. They're the exception. 
All right, number two, God accepts the worship from all religions, including Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. So we might think, well, I mean, they all have Abraham as their father. Judaism, Islam all go back to Father Abraham. Christianity, obviously, you know, as well. Um, And so it's the same God, right? We think it's the same, quote, unquote, God. uh, And so he must accept the worship from all religions, including Christianity, Islam, and Judaism. That is false. Jesus explicitly says, if you reject the Son, the Father has nothing to do with you. So if you reject Jesus Christ, then the Father will not hear your prayers, answer your prayers. So Jews and Muslims can pray all day long to the same quote-unquote God, but if you reject the, the Son, the Father has rejected you. Okay. Uh, some of you are like, I don't know if that's true. It's true. I spent 20 years studying this. You're just going to have to take my word for it. I don't tell you how to do your job. Okay, so next, God counts a person as righteous, not by the works they do, but by a person's faith in Jesus Christ. That is true. Our righteousness is not in of ourselves, but Christ's finished work enables us to be righteous. He declares us righteous. All right, we'll keep going. There is one God in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That is true. This is evidenced throughout Scripture, but easily seen when Jesus is baptized at the Jordan River in uh, Matthew's account. The Father is speaking from heaven. Jesus is standing in the Jordan, and the Spirit is descending in the form of a dove and lands on the shoulder of Christ, symbolizing his baptism, his anointing of ministry from that point forward. So you have the Father speaking, the Son standing, and the Spirit descending. Three Separate persons, but there's just one God. All right, next one. This is a little tricky. Jesus was the first and greatest created being by God. False. That is false. We We think that it's true because our brain starts to piece some scriptures together. Wait a minute. He's the firstborn among the dead. He's the first of all, firstborn of all creation. But... You have to understand that Jesus was not created by God. If he is created by God, he is not God. God has always existed. God is ever existent. And so Jesus, being God, cannot be created by God and be God. Okay, I know, it's deep stuff. It's super, super deep, okay? But you need to understand, he is not a created being. He's not like an angel. He's not like us. He is God. And we're going to get into answering the question, is Jesus really God, in just a minute. Spoiler alert, I just gave you the answer. Okay, so he was not created. He has always existed with the Father and the Holy Spirit as God. Okay, here we go. This is one that, that I think I know some of you are going to answer one way, and I'm going to tell you you're wrong. So worshiping alone is a valid replacement for regularly attending church. Worshiping alone is a valid replacement for regularly attending church. That is false. And I know, I know what you're thinking. You, some of you might be thinking, you know, well, we don't have to go to church to be a Christian. That is, that is true. You do not have to go to church to be a Christian. But worshiping alone is not a valid replacement for attending church because God established corporate worship for the purpose of fellowship, evangelism, and discipleship. 
We need each other, and that's the way that God designed it. So when we reject God's chosen avenue of discipleship and fellowship, we're shortchanging our own walk with the Lord. We need each other. Iron sharpens iron. Iron doesn't sharpen itself. Iron just sits there saying, man, I wish I was sharp. Why can't I sharpen myself? And God says, because iron sharpens iron. You need two things to sharpen each other, and that's why we need the church. We need each other to come together for the purposes of of evangelism, discipleship, and fellowship. All right, next, religious beliefs are a matter of personal opinion. There is no absolute truth. False. If you thought that was true, um, then I need you to go to our church website, not right now, after church, because it's going to play this sermon while I'm preaching, and it's going to be awkward. Everyone around you is going to hear it, and it's going to be weird. But you can go to our church website, friendshipchurch.cc, go to the sermons tab, and there is a, there's a graphic there that says Defending the Faith. And that is my Wednesday night series that I've been covering. Um, and part one answers the question, is there absolute truth? Just by stating the sentence, and I'll, a little spoiler alert, just by stating the sentence, there is no absolute truth, is making an absolute truth statement, which, if true, negates the very statement that it makes. Do you understand how ridiculous it is to say there is no absolute truth? You can't say that because that becomes an absolute truth. And so there clearly is an absolute truth if there's no absolute truth. It, it's called uh, circular logic or logical fallacy. Um, if it were true, it would be an absolute truth. Makes no sense. Um, okay, so next. Only those who trust in Jesus Christ as their Savior receive God's free gift of salvation. That is true. It is by grace through faith that we are saved in Jesus Christ and not through any works that you do. It doesn't matter. I will love you if you give away a thousand of these, but it's not going to get you any nicer condo in heaven. It's not going to get you into heaven. Uh, There are no works that you can do to get saved or to be saved. We're not saved by works. We are saved by grace. Okay, Scripture uh, discusses that quite a bit. All right, the Bible like all sacred writings, contains helpful accounts of ancient myths, but is not literally true. That is false. 2 Timothy 3.16, it says, All Scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. This Bible is completely unique in that it is different from any other book in all of writing any other book because it is the only book that is God-breathed. No other ancient or modern text can make that claim. You can love it. Oh, this is a good book. Max Lucado wrote it. Rick Warren wrote it. Joel Osteen wrote it. T.L. Osborne wrote it. Oral Roberts wrote it. It doesn't matter who wrote it. The Bible is God-breathed, and all these other books can be good, but God uses this Scripture to speak to us. The Holy Spirit will use this word to speak to us. And uh, so the Bible is unlike any other sacred book. All right, lastly, you're thinking, thank goodness. Lastly, God is unconcerned with my day-to-day decisions. That is false. God is concerned with the details of your life. He cares about your coming and your going 
He guides the steps of the righteous. The Bible says the steps of a righteous person are ordered of the Lord. The steps, and I believe, the stops. So when he wants you to step and when he wants you to stop, those are ordered of the Lord. All right, so how did you do? Did, if, if you answered any of those questions incorrectly, you were in the right place because the goal of the church is to help you grow in truth. Um, the, the greatest truth that every Christian must know and have resolved in their mind is the issue of the deity of Jesus Christ. Is Jesus really God? If he's not, as Paul said, if Jesus Christ is not God, if Jesus Christ did not rise from the dead, all my preaching is foolishness. Your faith is worthless. That's what Paul said. If Christ is not raised. So if Jesus Christ is not really God, then I'm just giving you a really charismatic pep talk and nothing more. John chapter 8 is where we're looking today. John chapter 8, Jesus had a run-in with the religious leaders of his day. They refused to acknowledge that Jesus was the Messiah. And instead, they were looking to Moses. They were looking to Abraham as their saviors. They valued the ancestry they had with Abraham as proof that God approved of their lives. And Jesus was quick to point out, this is a very, very fascinating chapter, uh, which we won't go uh, verse by verse today, but um, Jesus was quick to point out that Abraham was not their father. He's speaking to religious leaders. He said, Abraham is not your father because if Abraham was your father, you would, have, you would have righteous faith the way Abraham did. No, your father is the devil. Yeah, so imagine showing up at a pastor's convention and leading with that. If you knew God, if God was your father, you would be pursuing righteousness, but you're not. You're pursuing self-serving behavior where you're trying, you're, you're the most selfish, hypocritical people, and God is not your father. The devil is your father, and you're a liar just like him. He was a liar from the beginning. When he opens his mouth, all he does is lie, and you're his children because you lie. Jesus didn't get invited back to speak at that pastor's convention. Um, but this is what he said in John chapter 8, verses 54 through 59. Jesus said this, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. In this passage of Scripture, if you ever come in contact with, uh, with people of different 
beliefs such as Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons who do not believe that Jesus ever asserted his deity. He, they believe he never declared himself to be the Son of God. He never asserted that he was God. This is, this is one of many scriptures to point them to. He is invoking the covenant name of God, I am, when he declares himself to be God. We'll get into that in just a minute. But he asserted his deity. What does that mean? What, is it, what does deity mean? What does it mean for Jesus to be deity? Well, John chapter 1, verse 3, it says, All things, it says of Jesus, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So all good things that God created were created through Jesus Christ. He was there with God in the beginning because he is God. He is the word of God in bodily form. And so that means, number one, you're on your sheet if you're filling in blanks. It means that Jesus has equality with God. Jesus has equality with God. John chapter 1 declared it. It's declared throughout Scripture. Jesus was with God when the world was created. When God was creating humanity, God said, the Scripture says in Genesis 1.26, let us make man in our image and in our likeness. So from the very beginning, there is a plural nature that you come across as you're reading Genesis. From the very first chapter, you see there's something about God that is not singular. He is one God in three persons. And so we, this is why in the Hebrew, when uh, the word, the name of God is written in Hebrew, it's Elohim, and Elohim is a plural word. Um, but it's never, it's never interpreted gods. It's always God in a plural form. So there's one God and three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's the mystery of the Trinity. John 10, 30. John 10, 30, Jesus said, I and the Father are one. And so part of the deity means that Jesus had, number two, oneness with God. He had oneness with God. There was no division between the Father and Jesus. There's no disunity. There's no confusion between them. There's perfect unity, perfect harmony, and perfect fellowship. If you're married, you, you may have had a moment in your marriage where you looked at your spouse and and you said something, and they said something like at the same time. You know, we always finish each other's sandwiches. Um, sentence. It's a, that's a quote from Frozen. If you haven't seen it, be thankful. So, um, but, you know, you have this moment where there's unity, where you, you were, oh, I was going to say that. I was thinking the same thing. Jinx, you owe me a Coke. Whatever your tradition is, whatever you kind of say, there's a moment sometimes where you can have this perfect unity. You were thinking the same thing. You were saying the same thing. You were telling the same story to somebody. And you're like, oh, yeah, I did that. And, and you have this moment of perfect unity, perfect harmony, perfect fellowship. That's what Jesus and the Father and the Spirit have at all times. There's total oneness with God. That's number two. In John 14, 7, Jesus said, If you had known me, you would have known the Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. How? Because, number three, Jesus is the likeness of God. Jesus is the likeness of God. Paul wrote in Colossians 1, 15, it's one of my favorite scriptures. 
It says, he, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Some of you have heard me say this before, but for the sake of those who haven't, just bear with me. The word image there in the Greek is the word icon. And if you've ever used a computer, you know what an icon is. It's the thing that you double-click in order to access a program. All right? Has anybody, I'm not going to ask, has anybody ever not used a computer? That would make you feel bad. So most of us have used a computer, even though we may not have wanted to. We've been forced, and, and somebody, you know, maybe our, our family members said, here, use this, you're going to love it. And we're like, I don't know how to use this thing. But there's icons on your desktop, all right? Just stick with me for a second. There's icons on your desktop. And so when you install, when you get a CD in the mail, AOL, remember those? When they were giving away like, you know, like I used them as coasters. I had so many AOL CDs. 500 free hours if you'll, if you'll do this. And so you put the CD in and it loads the program. It downloads, installs the program onto your computer. But the program is hidden in all these files. The way to access the program is through what? The icon. Okay? So when you install a program, it installs an icon on the desktop of your computer. And that icon is how you access everything that computer can do, everything that software, that, that, that uh, program can do. The icon is the physical representation that you have installed a program onto your computer and you now have access to it. The, the icon is the gateway to all the things that the software developer promised you that program can do. So it is with Jesus. He is the icon. He is the image of the invisible God. So when you accept Jesus Christ and when you get into right relationship with him, you now have full access to all the things that God has promised his children through your relationship with the icon, with the image of God in Christ Jesus. You're no longer on the outside looking in. You now have full access to the creator of the universe in Jesus Christ our Lord. The end of Hebrews chapter 4, it says, we now have a great high priest in Jesus Christ, and we can now come with confidence. We can come boldly and draw near to the throne of grace because Jesus is the likeness of God why? How? Because he is God. John 8, 58. Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am. And because he used God's sacred covenant name here, I am, he asserted that he was, number four, eternal with God. He was asserting that he was eternal with God. This I am statement is a reference, again, to God's covenant name that God revealed to Moses at the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3. Moses said, uh, God was saying, I'm sending you to back to Egypt to liberate the, the Israelites there. And Moses said, who am I going to say sent me? And God says, you will say, I am sent you. I am that I am, this ever-existent God. 
And because Jesus used God's covenant name in John chapter 8 with these Jewish people, that explains their response. They picked up stones to stone him because it was considered blasphemy for anyone to utter the covenant name of God. But it's not blasphemy when God utters his own name. So Jesus was confident that he could say God's covenant name because he is God. The birth of Christ was not Jesus' beginning. He is eternal with God. He's existed as God. And John makes it, John in John chapter 1 makes it clear that Jesus has always existed as the second member of the Trinity. That he humbled himself and he was born into this world to teach us, to minister, to suffer, to die, and to rise. So as we prepare ourselves for Easter, as we are preparing ourselves to encounter our friends and our neighbors and maybe share an invitation with them to our Easter services or to go to a church, visit a church this Easter, they want to know, they may ask, what is the, what is the proof? What's the evidence of Christ's deity? What proof do you have that Jesus is the Son of God, that he is God? So, the first evidence of the deity of Jesus Christ is his supernatural birth. His supernatural birth. It was prophesied in Isaiah 7:14 that the Messiah would be born of a virgin, and it was confirmed in Matthew 1:23. I think everybody in this room can all agree that being born of a virgin is incredibly uh, unique and not normal. It's not an everyday occurrence. There are some species of animals and plants and microorganisms that can reproduce without a mate. There are some species of sharks, uh, sharks, lizards, snakes, stick bugs, um, other insects. But humans cannot. Humans cannot. So for Jesus to be born of a virgin would be a truly supernatural occurrence. So the first evidence of his deity was his supernatural birth. The second evidence of Jesus' deity is his supernatural life. Hebrews 7.26, it says that Jesus, uh, of Jesus, it is fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. 1 Peter 2.22, it says he committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. His life was perfect. He never committed a single sin. Because if he had, he would not have been able to be the perfect sinless sacrifice that was needed to cover our sins. So the second evidence is the supernatural life. The third evidence of his deity is his supernatural ministry. His supernatural ministry. When when Peter was standing on the day of Pentecost in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 2, He is telling these Jewish people that have come into Jerusalem from all over the country, all over the world, uh, celebrating the Jewish festival Shavuot. He's telling them about Jesus, and he said in Acts 2.22, he said, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. These people that Peter is speaking to were witnesses of Jesus' ministry. And they knew full well how he did things only God could do. In Acts 10.38, Peter said to a group of Gentiles about how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good 
which a lot of people do. But he went about doing good and healing all those who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And the entire life of Christ was that of performing miracles. He healed the sick. He cast out devils. He walked on water. He raised the dead. These are things that only God can do. And the Jewish people of Jesus' day and age were shocked when Jesus raised Lazarus, raised Dorcas, raised other people from the dead because only God can bring back the dead. And Jesus was able to do it. Number four, the fourth evidence of Jesus' deity was his supernatural death. His supernatural death. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15, 3. I know I'm giving you a lot of scripture. It's why I wrote the, uh, the references down on your sheet so you could, wouldn't have to write them down and, and flip to them real quickly. But Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15, 3. He said that Christ died for our sins in accordance with scripture. So scripture was declaring that God would come in the flesh and would die for our sins. Later, Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 5.21, he said, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Christ didn't die as a martyr. He died as a sacrifice. It was God's plan. God knew that mankind would sin and need a Savior. Which is why Jesus is called in Revelation 13, 8, the lamb who was slain from the foundation of the world. When the world was created and the foundation was established, that he was called the lamb who was slain because humanity would need a savior. His supernatural death. Number five, the fifth evidence of the deity of Christ was the supernatural resurrection. The supernatural resurrection. The gospel accounts of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John rarely include the same story. They'll, they'll, tell, um, they'll tell some of the same stories, but all four gospels rarely include the exact same story. Matthew focuses on the, the Jewishness of Christ, that he is the, the uh, king, uh, the son of David, that he's the, the Jewish king. Mark focuses on the miracles, that Jesus is the miracle worker. Luke a physician focuses on the healings. There are more healings in Luke's gospel than any other gospel account. And John focuses on Jesus being the son of man. He is, the, you see the humanity of Christ way more in John's gospel than any other gospel. So sometimes they, they're not telling the same stories. You bring them together and you get this, this sweeping epic story of all the things Jesus said and did as recorded by the gospel accounts. So very rarely will one story appear in all four Gospels, but the story of his crucifixion and the story of his resurrection all appear. Why? Because they're incredibly important. If there is no crucifixion, there is no substitutionary death for your sins. Christ substituted himself for you. He took the curse of sin for you so that you didn't have to die in your sins. And so we have the cross and we also have the resurrection of Christ, which basically means, as I, and I actually talked a little bit about this on our past Wednesday night, um, did Jesus rise from the dead? In our Defending the Faith series, you should listen to that. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, he's not God. Because there were lots of religions started by men. Islam and uh, Buddhism, Hinduism, animism, all the world religions, every religion has been started by a man 
who died. Only one was started by someone who died and came back to life and was resurrected from the dead. So uh, if Christ died, that's, that's important, but it cannot be the end of the story, which thankfully for us, it is not, because all the world religion leaders died. Only one was uh, resurrected and brought back to life. And so no one had the power, no man ever had the power over death. If Christ didn't rise, there's no hope for man. There are too many scriptures to list as evidence of Christ's resurrection and that he appeared to hundreds of people after he was resurrected. People who were now eyewitnesses, firsthand eyewitnesses to his resurrection. And so I encourage you, go back and, and, and uh, listen to the Defending the Faith series, this last one on uh, Did Christ Rise from the Dead. I encourage you to listen to that. I think it will help you, especially if you're talking to people and inviting the church, and they may have some questions about this story. Number six, the sixth evidence of Jesus' deity is his supernatural ascension. I loved watching street magic. That was like one of my favorite things. David Blaine and uh, some of these other guys, street magicians, you know, and I learned how to do some of their tricks. I learned how to, um, you know, burn a piece of paper with something written on it, and it would appear on my arm, and it's totally fake. It's completely fake. I could tell you how to do it, but then if I ever did it, then you would go, well, that's not really magic. It's not. It's not magic at all. There's nothing uh, there's nothing real about magic. It's an illusion. And one of the, one of the most you know, famous and most interesting tricks is when street magicians tell people they're going to levitate. They're going to actually lift their bodies off the ground and levitate. Now, you're on a, you're on a sidewalk, and you meet this person who says they're going to levitate, so immediately you're like, okay, whatever. And so what the street magician tells them to do is they say, go stand over here. All right, you've got to stand right here. Why do you have to stand over there? Because they don't want you to see what they're about to do. And they almost always have this long trench coat. It's not rainy outside, but the trench coat is necessary to the illusion. And so from where you are standing, you are, you're looking. Now, you're not laying on the ground. You know, they're like, just stay right there. Just stand up and watch this. And so they show you, they begin to levitate. And, and so, so what they do is they, they go up on the back leg that you can't see, and they lift up the front leg that you can see. And they're all like, hold on, you know, and you, they're, they're acting like they're, they're actually levitating. Spoiler alert, they're not. They're fooling you. It's an optical illusion. And if somebody were on the other side, they would go, man, you ain't levitating. You're lifting one leg. Anybody can do that. Anybody can fake levitating, okay? Jesus, uh, can, Jesus, the Scripture talks about in Acts chapter 1, 9 through 11, that Jesus ascended into heaven in full view of the disciples. So he wasn't going up with one leg, whoa, guys, whoa. No, he actually lifted and kept going, and so that the disciples were standing there staring at him, seeing something they've never seen in their entire life, and then angels appeared, and they said to him, guys, why are you staring at the clouds? Jesus is gone, okay, and gives them some instruction. So this supernatural ascension, doing something that nobody had ever done before with his own, in his own power, 
Okay, we know Elijah was caught up in the chariots of fire. Scripture talks about Enoch was walking with God and then one day was gone, boo, you know, shot into space. We don't know how it all works. It's like God had his bank vacuum tube and he just put it over Enoch and Enoch got sucked up into heaven. I don't know how it works. All I know is they didn't do any of that of their own power, but Jesus did. He supernaturally ascended. So now, if you ever see some of the street magicians, you're like, faker, faker, Jesus can only levitate, you can't. So what do we see in the man of deity? If Jesus is God, then if he is deity, then what do we see? We see that Jesus is the son of God. He is fully God. He is the image of God in the flesh. He's the icon, as we explain. Uh, He's the image of the invisible God. So when you've seen Jesus, you've seen the face of God. Paul wrote in 1 Timothy 3.16 that God was manifested in the flesh. So Jesus is flesh. He was flesh and bone. Flesh and bone. He could be seen. He could be touched. He could be spoken to. He got hungry. He ate. Um, He, you know, after he was resurrected, he showed him the, the nail prints, and he said, put your finger in the nail prints. You can touch me. And so Jesus is spending time with them. Just imagine how wild that would have been for people. Blue-collar workers back in, in Israel in, in the time when Jesus appeared. Blue-collar workers, IRS auditors, preachers, homemakers, soldiers, seminary professors, merchants, the super wealthy, and they all got to be face-to-face with God. And when you look back, deep into his eyes, and he looks deep into your eyes, seeing everything that you hide from everyone else, what would you say to him? Isaiah 7.14 prophesied that one of the names of the Messiah would be Emmanuel, God with us. Matthew 16.16, Jesus was called the Son of the living God. Jesus said in John 10.38, The Father is in me, and I in him. Jesus' baptism at the Jordan, also on the Mount of Transfiguration. Eyewitnesses heard a voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. So the Father asserted the deity of Jesus. So we should too. And so again, when you have people, Hello, I'd like to give you a copy of the Watchtower. These are Jehovah's Witnesses who do not believe in the deity of Jesus Christ. I've just given you a bunch of scriptures where the Bible says, in itself, Jesus Christ is God. And lastly, Jesus is the Son of Man. He's fully man. He had feelings. So he could understand our feelings. Matthew 26, 38, Jesus said to his disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane, my soul is very sorrowful even to the point of death. Hebrews 2, 14, it says, for because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Our God is a God who can empathize with our struggles and temptations because he was tempted. He was fully God, so he wept. Luke 19, 41, he looked out over Jerusalem, and his heart broke over the lostness of the people in the city. They were so close to God's temple, but they were so far from God's heart. His heart was broken over their condition, and he wept. When I was a kid, 
we would always have to, you know, our, our Sunday school teacher put us on the spot. What's your favorite scripture verse? And, you know, I'm like, uh, you know, and I was afraid I was going to come up with something that didn't exist. You know, like Philippians uh, 42, 18. Spoiler alert, there are not 42 chapters in Philippians. I was always afraid, so I came up with something easy to remember. John eleven thirty five, 35. John eleven thirty five. 35. Jesus wept. And they're like, that doesn't count. And I'm like, are you saying Scripture's invalid? Are you saying a, a verse of the Bible doesn't count? They're like, you only said that because it's the shortest verse in the Bible. Well, it's easy to remember but as I, as I began to study that passage of Scripture, which we'll actually go through in, in a few weeks, John eleven thirty five, 35, Jesus wept. What, what uh, preceded that moment? The death of someone very close to him. Jesus knew what he was about to do. Okay? He knew that he was going to give the command. He knew that Lazarus would rise from the dead but that didn't keep him from feeling the emotion of the moment. Someone close to him had died, and it moved him so deeply that he didn't have a single tear. Scripture says he wept. He wept over the, the situation with Mary and Martha and the situation with Lazarus, and that it looked hopeless, but he knew it wasn't. And so... Jesus felt that pain of Mary and Martha. He knows our pain. He knows our heartache. He knows, he understands our tears and what we go through when we lose something that's important to us. Since he was fully human, he became hungry. And in, in, uh, later on, after his resurrection, he hangs out with the disciples and he eats. He eats, you know, he's like, what you guys got, got to eat? And so he eats with them. I mean, he feels hunger. In Matthew 4, he went into the wilderness. He fasted for 40 days. He became hungry. He understands our physical needs. And at the point of physical death, he could empathize with the hungry and hurting around him. So by being fully human, Jesus is able to relate to us physically, emotionally, mentally, relationally, and spiritually. He's the God made flesh. He's the God with us. Most world religions are stories about how men try to become God. Christianity is about God who became man. Took upon himself the sin of the world to redeem the curse of sin in our lives. I'm going to ask our worship team to come up. We had a question submitted during the, during the conversation during during my message and so here we go how do we defend the supernatural birth of our of jesus when islam claims the same jesus so that's a good question and i'm not an expert on the doctrines of islam when it comes to um you know sharing our faith uh, certainly we've got missionaries who are in uh, middle eastern countries who could do a much better job uh, i would say the fact that uh, the quran uses, uh, talks about Jesus, Isa, in the Quran. It talks about Jesus more than it speaks of Muhammad. The, the uh, Quran speaks of Jesus as a prophet, just like Moses, Abraham, David, and, and some others. It speaks of Jesus as a prophet. Of course, the Quran says that Muhammad is the last and greatest prophet. 
we understand that's not true. Um, but the fact that the Quran speaks of Jesus gives actually us an opportunity to say, well, your holy book mentions Jesus. This, you should read the Gospels because this actually tells all about the life of Christ. And so I think it gives us a very unique opportunity to use our Bible to say, let me fill in the gaps for you, the gaps that the Quran has, the Bible fills in. And so it gives us an opportunity to share about Jesus. We, you know, um, Jews say Adonai, Elohim. We say God or Jesus. Um, Muslims will say Allah. Um, and they rarely say Isa, but Isa is the Hebrew, uh, I'm sorry, the Arabic name for Jesus. Um, and so we have a, a word that means God. And so for us, I think the emphasis is we need to focus on Jesus. We need to focus on Isa when we are speaking to Muslims, talking about the difference between Christianity. Because when we talk about God, they think we're talking about the same thing. And we have to be careful. Again, going back to what Jesus said, if you've rejected me, the Father has rejected you. And so you don't get God without Jesus. And so we've got to emphasize the teaching of the Gospels, showing and demonstrating the life of Christ. Um, so again, there's a lot that goes into that. and We can certainly provide more material if you want. If you have some Muslims that you're talking to, witnessing to, we can certainly try to provide you with some additional uh, information so that you can uh, share the gospel with them. Would you stand with me this morning? The question we started the, the um, message with, is Jesus really God? No one in all of history makes the same claims of Jesus that same claims of deity that Jesus made. Nobody else. No rabbi, no holy man, no self-proclaimed miracle worker ever did what Jesus did. Now, they may say, I'm God. There's a guy in Miami that says he's the second coming of Jesus Christ. No, you're not. No, you're not. There are people who say they're the Messiah. I'm God in the flesh. No, you're not. Scripture demonstrates exactly what it looks like when God comes in the flesh. There's no mistaking it. Nobody fulfilled the Old Testament prophecies the way Jesus did. Nobody did. God specified hundreds of years before Jesus was ever born over 300 details about his lineage, his family tree, his birth, his life, his death, his resurrection. And so out of all the nations of the earth, he would be born as an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham. And out of, out of Abraham's two sons, Isaac and Ishmael, he would be born from Isaac's line and not Ishmael's line. And out of Isaac's line, out of Isaac's two sons, Jacob and Esau, he would come out of Jacob's descendants and not Esau's. Out of Jacob's 12 sons, and he also had daughters, out of Jacob's children, he would come from Judah and not any of the others. Out of all of Judah's descendants, the Messiah would come through the line of Jesse. And then out of all of Jesse's sons, he would come through the line of David. He would be born in the small town of Bethlehem. It was a blip on the map in that day and age. It was not Jerusalem. It was not this, this big city, this capital city. It was a small town. And when he was born, the scripture talks about a tragedy would occur where the families of the town, uh, families in that town would, uh, would weep because someone killed children in the city, in the city of Bethlehem. 
So all of these details are being emerged hundreds of years before Jesus is born. It also says that he would be preceded by a messenger who would herald his coming. We understand that's John the Baptist. He will conduct a lot of, of his ministry in Galilee. When he speaks, he'll speak in parables. He'll perform many miracles. All of these are unique prophecies throughout the Old Testament. And in one day, and if you have your insert, you can look on the back of it. In one day, there are 28 prophecies that Jesus fulfilled. In 24 hours, he fulfilled 28 prophecies. It is statistically impossible for anyone to do what Jesus did if he is not Jesus Christ, if he is not the Messiah, if he's not the Son of God. It is a statistical impossibility. So the question is, is Jesus really God? Well, God could not have made it any plainer. He could not have made it any more obvious that Jesus is the Messiah. And everybody who has access to a Bible has access, to, has the ability to clearly see that Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world. He's the King of Kings. He's the Lord of Lords. He is the great I am. He's the Alpha and the Omega. He's the first and the last. He's the stone that the builders rejected that has become the chief cornerstone. He's the Ancient of Days. He's the Son of God and He's the Son of Man. He's the bright and morning star, the rock of ages, and the God of all creation. That is who Jesus Christ is. So when people doubt, is Jesus Christ really God? If they wonder that, there is plenty of Scripture. Loads, even more than I gave you today, proving Jesus Christ is God. We're going to worship the Lord this morning. I encourage you, if you have a need in your life, maybe you're not where you need to be with the Lord. You've got some sin in your life and you don't want to go any farther. You want to leave this place without being right with God. We want to pray for you. Maybe you've got a need in your life that is different, a physical need. You need healing. You need wisdom. You need God to touch you, touch a family member. If you want to stand in on behalf of someone else in your family and pray for them, that's perfectly fine. But as our worship team uh, closes our service and leads us in a final song, we want to give you the opportunity. We want to pray with you if you have a need in your life. So would you, as they as they worship, as they lead us, you can worship or come forward for, with, uh, for prayer. And I'd love to have the opportunity to pray for you this morning.